0: The privilege that I occupy is in relation to hegemonic violence everywhere. So like the pervasiveness and subtlety of hegemony, it's like the matrix, it's everywhere. Uh, Maybe to borrow a little bit from the Wachowski siblings and like a little bit from Kimberley Crenshaw, we're all in a prison that for many of us, we can neither feel nor taste nor touch. It's everywhere. But this means that the work of resistance has to be equally ubiquitous. It means that from making decisions about how I structure my payroll to how I parent my children. I need to always, always be looking for ways to learn and to do the work. It's all the work. And, you know, if that sounds exhausting to the other white folks listening in today, imagine what it's like for the folks for whom prison isn't a metaphor, the folks for whom the very notion of America was constructed to subjugate. I choose to engage in this work because I was afforded the choice. And also because choosing not to make a choice is a choice too.
1: Hi, I'm Tim Sonova, and welcome to Work Shouldn't Suck, a podcast about, well, that. We've paused our regular podcast episodes to produce this 10-part mini-series called White Men and the Journey Towards Anti-Racism. While you can listen to the episodes in any order, if you're joining us in the midst of this adventure, I invite you to check out episode 54 of our podcast, where my co-host Lauren Ruffin and I introduce the series and frame these conversations. All of the episodes, as well as a whole host of amazing resources on the topic not by white guys, can be found on WorkShunSuck.co. In this series, we're talking with a variety of white guys who are personally and professionally engaged in anti-racism work. When asked, they each define the work in slightly different ways. Some articulate it as anti-racism or anti-oppression work. Others say they approach it more through a justice lens. Others, inclusion and belonging. Still others, equity and impact. Through these conversations, we'll explore the moments that led each of them to do this work, including their initial realizations that this was work for white guys to be doing. We'll discuss what's been most impactful and resonant to them in the journey, what's been most challenging, and, since this is a podcast about the workplace, we'll discuss how this work shows up in the organizations they lead and the ones they work with. On today's conversation, I'm joined by Sydney Skybetter, someone who wears a multitude of hats, which you can read more about in his bio that's included in the episode description. One thing conspicuously absent I noticed is his stint as a famed co host of the kind of popular ish online TV show Skynova. Perhaps if time allows, we'll dig into that. So let's get going. Sydney, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you, Tim. It's a pleasure to be here. Though, so quick note to Bene, I'm not sure we were ever popular. I
1: said popular-ish.
0: Oh, I see. I was gonna say your, your mom may differ on that opinion. Right. But anyway, a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: Sydney. you wear a multitude of hats. And even though I've known you for more than a decade, I lose track of which ones you're wearing when from time to time. So how do you typically introduce yourself these days and the work that you do?
0: After being in industry for 20 years, I have finally consolidated my hats to just one. I introduced myself now as a choreographer. I have, as you mentioned, have had a number of different kind of professional ventures or interfaces. I've done everything from web design to um, actually speaking of hats. I was a Ukrainian hat salesman for a, a, a while there. Um, that was in the early two thousands. That was the first time I got fired. Uh, I digress. I introduce myself as a choreographer because I'm interested in, in uh, bodies and how bodies move through space and time. And most recently, how bodies move in relation to computational systems, ranging from robotics to virtual reality and artificial intelligences. I'm a professor here at Brown University and the founder of a center for research on choreographic interfaces.
1: That's cool. What is the center going to be focused on? So
0: for the last seven years, we have produced a convening here at Brown called the Conference for Research on Choreographic Interfaces, or Circe, named for the Homeric Necromancer Witch, whose story reminds us, among other things, of the dangers of technologies that are indistinguishable from magic. Functionally, this convening has been all about the creative possibilities and perils of when bodies meet emerging computational systems, ranging from the kind of quotidian, from our watches and phones and computers, to the more uh, advanced and militaristic, ranging from military robots and drones to the surveillance apparatus at the TSA. Wherever bodies run into these computational systems, there are possibilities and no small amount of risks. And this conference and now center exists to study these and uh, intervene where possible.
1: Fascinating, Sydney. We've talked to, with a lot of people in this podcast miniseries who define the work that they do differently, anti-racism, anti-oppression, diversity, equity, inclusion, justice. I'm really curious, too, with the work that you're doing with the center, how do you define and categorize the lenses that you view your work, and especially through some pretty problematic stuff that's developing around AI and robotics and, and how those systems are especially oppressive of non-white guys?
0: Yeah, that's a deep stack. I think the term I center on most frequently of the litany you just mentioned is justice and consideration of designing towards justice. I'm involved in a lot of conversations that pertain to the design and implementation of a lot of these emerging technologies. We work with a lot of technologists, engineers, and designers who are in the room making and building and testing these things. And because of this, I'm particularly interested in and cite frequently the work of Sasha Costanza-Shock, Design Justice. This is a phenomenal book and critique that distinguishes, among other things, between designing for good and designing towards justice. If you imagine IDEO or OXO or any number of these design agencies that pretend or pretend to design towards universality, universal design is a kind of mantra that is pretty popular and has been for the last decade or so. But Costanza Schock points out that the idea of universal design is a mythology. It's impossible. Even if you have like a slightly wider carrot peeler or whatever, you are still designing towards certain kinds of affordances and creating disaffordances for others. And so this question of universality is is first completely dismissed. We are always when designing or engineering something, creating affordances for some and disaffordances for others. This is a way of dismantling the question of designing towards good or working towards good, but introduces a more complex question of what what does it mean to design towards justice? What does it mean to create design processes that are oriented towards an intersectional approach that acknowledge hegemonic violence, that acknowledge ecological justice and climate change, that acknowledge the asymmetries in the corporeal risks pertaining to the emergence of these technologies? This allows us to reconceive of design culture in a really, I think, radical way that this is still a practice, by the way, we're still working on figuring out how to do this, but there are, are growing communities of practice that are, are committed to this work, and the CRC Center is a good company here. The other further complication when thinking about designing towards justice or emerging technologies that pertain towards questions of justice, we're working within some really fraught institutional frameworks here. So for example, I'm a professor at Brown. It's a 300-year-old institution on stolen land built by enslaved labor. I am extending a legacy of displacement and uh, hegemonic violence that while I aim politically in my uh, research and creative practice to counter, I'm nonetheless implicated in it also. This gets even more complicated when we start talking about, for example, some of the robotic research that we're doing here at Brown with military robotics. In order to understand these robotic systems, we have to first acquire them and we have to use military money to buy military robots. So we're participating in this economy that we nonetheless seek to dismantle. And so this implication, these implications within a matrix of structures that I disagree with strongly, this is really, this is challenging ethically. This is a really pernicious ethical territory. And a text that really helps in the parsing of these implications is a phenomenal book by critic um, and scholar Anna Watkins Fisher. She wrote a book called The Play in the System, The Art of Parasitical Resistance. And this text, which does, it's a magisterial book, but among other things, it argues using artist case studies that, okay, we can't like step outside of capitalism we can't just like turn off our implications in military technologies like we all use the internet we all use, have our phones like we can't just like stop using these things so the question maybe becomes how do we deploy our implication in these systems specifically so as to do the work of dismantling them and now this is an intermittently utopian vector it's sloppy it's messy it's complicated it's contradicts itself but Fisher's argument is that we don't have a choice but to do this. And I, I find that really compelling because also uh, in order to understand how military robotics, for example, perpetuate certain kinds of racist violence, we need to actually get the robots. We need to understand the robots. And to do that, we need to buy the robots. And to buy the robots, we need the grants. And to get the grants, we need to have relationships with the military. I don't like any of those things, yet that is how the research
1: happens. How do you reconcile that? That's Skybetter? guy better holding all of those things at the same time? Intermittently, it's a challenge.
0: I don't know that I have a perfect balance or completely equitable understanding of these factors. I mean, and part of the difficulty here is that the effects of these implications, the effects of these entanglements is intentionally opaque. It is black boxed. So for example, the robots that we use in the lab, they feed data back to the folks who designed the robots to begin with. It is impossible for me to know how that data is used. Chances are good that that data is used to improve the robotic operation systems overall. And chances are good that by improving the operational qualities of these robots, that the robots become better at things like police surveillance and war fighting. So I can't quantify that. I can't even know that is certain to be the case, But this is also part of the research. This is part of the practice to discern what data is leaking from these robots and how it's potentially being used. One of the ways that I I rationalize this though, I I have to admit this isn't terribly satisfying is that we engage in the research so as to understand the implications of the research. And I, I don't know that we have a choice to step away from the nature of the research. Cause for example, if, if we stop working with the robots, it's not as though the robots stop existing. It's not as though the robots are going to, because we aren't paying attention to them, stop being deployed in communities of color or abroad in warfighting fighting environments. My hope is to utilize what privilege I have, what institutional capital and access I can manage so as to get as close to these systems as possible, so as to learn how to create friction, so as to teach my students about how these things work in the world, not just in the abstract, in a kind of distance critical or journalistic fashion, but at the level of the code to teach how specifically not only are these robots implicated within larger structures of hegemonic violence, but indeed to teach about our implication in the classroom relative to the robots, relative to the hegemonic violence. For example, we're teaching choreo robotics in the spring. This is a course that is all about the overlap of choreographic theory and robotic motion planning, because Brown University. Anyway, built into the course is critique of us in the course. We are attempting to keep not only our eyes open as professors and instructors, but we are attempting to share this critical uncertainty with our students. Again, it's messy, it's sloppy, it's uncertain, it's a mess, and yet, this is where the work is, I think, especially when it pertains to these emerging technologies.
1: Sydney, that's really fascinating, and you weren't always buying military robots. Can you talk about what brought you to this work of justice? And did you come directly to justice or what was that journey like and why is this important to you?
0: I have long been interested in the relationship of bodies and emerging technologies of all sorts and Going back dance historically, I'm a conservatory trained dancer. I have conservatory training in creating dances for stages, using stage lighting and costuming, selling tickets through the technical apparatus of what's called a theater and using technologies of marketing and communications. Like all all of the ways that we understand live performance are embedded with numerous interlocking technologies that at one point were emergent. One of the ways that I got into robotics and the currently emergent technologies such as robotics is by studying historical emerging technologies. For example, the proscenium stage was itself an emerging technology from the 1600s into the 1700s. The proscenium stage was an immensely controversial technology. French courtiers argued that the proscenium stage was going to kill ballet until, you know, a hundred years passed and all the courtiers themselves died. And then everybody kind of forgot what the hullabaloo was about. And now we have proscenium stages everywhere. The point being that like all of these technologies that are now naturalized and understood as part of performing arts practice at one point were emergent. Whether we're talking about the internet, social media, virtual reality, robotics, these are contemporarily emerging technologies. And I want to understand how they affect bodies and their performances in various ways tested to this is a crucial turn, namely that within a lot of these computational systems, our bodies are not just performing for other people. For example, in the Zuckerberg meta universe where our bodies are represented in some fictitious virtual world, represented as avatars that are performing for other avatars that are in fact other people. When we're talking about some of these surveillance technologies in particular, there is no human on the other end of the performance. We are performing constantly for the computational apparatus. I'm thinking for example, also of Facebook's omnipresent tracking, Facebook, which has, um, I don't know, approaching 2 billion users or something at this point, incessantly tracks the geographic location of each of its users over all of time. Facebook serves advertisements on the basis of our movements through space and time. And this, this for me is a choreographic function. This is bodies moving in space and time towards certain kinds of meanings. The difference here is though, that in contrast to me performing on a stage for an audience of people, all 2 billion of us on Facebook are constantly performing for a massively artificially intelligent Borg that we call Facebook. We are performing for the computational system, the surveillance computational system. This for me is bananas. This is a deep stack of bonkers. And my work over the last decade or so has been to try and figure out how choreography and dancerly practice give us a critical vocabulary to contend with some of these issues. Like how are these emerging technologies such as Facebook's AI, how can we tie these now emerging technologies to historical technologies and interventions like the proscenium. So no, I haven't always been buying uh, military robots, but to me, the military robots, and I'm thinking here of the work of Boston Dynamics in particular, which creates dancing robotic performances online and and in real life. This is part of a dance historical genealogy that I take really seriously, not only in terms of performance, but in terms of emerging technologies.
1: Have you always defined it as justice?
0: No. No, I have not always been thinking about this in context of justice. There are a number of crucial Black feminist thinkers whose work and scholarship totally not only changed my research game, but completely formulatively undergird what I now understand as my practice and critique. I'm thinking here of Simone Brown, who wrote a phenomenal book called Dark Matters that traces a genealogy of emerging technologies back to the 1700s, back to triangle trade. She illustrates how contemporary surveillance technologies have root in then emerging technologies of the slave galley, lamplighting laws, emerging technologies of surveillance, for example, that are deployed at the TSA. They um, originate conceptually 300 years ago in specifically anti-Black racism. So this book, Dark Matters, illustrates how the practice of anti-Blackness specifically not only is a tale as old as time, but is consistently found in emerging surveillance technologies for the last three or 400 years. So Simone Brown's work has been absolutely instrumental and specifically reading that book in 2016 or whenever it was that it came out. That text really helped reorient me away from like, look at all this cool shit that technology can do towards look at all this hellaciously damaging emerging technology, that has existed for centuries. We consider the Facebook stuff, for example, to be new and novel, and a lot of the utopian sort of dressing of these emerging technologies emphasizes the newness, the possibility of it all. Simone Brown is one of many Black feminist thinkers who point out actually not only is none of this new, but it's, it's as old and as damaging as the triangle trade itself.
1: Hey everyone, it's Tim. I wanna take a quick break from our conversation to share some really exciting news with you. We spent a lot of time on this podcast discussing how to create inclusive, equitable, thriving anti-racist workplaces. About a year ago, my colleagues Courtney Harge and Nicola Carpenter even taught a course about an important piece of this work, race-based caucusing. And here's the exciting part. We just released an online version of that popular course. If you're listening to this podcast and wondering, how do you actually create an anti-racist workplace? This course is for you. If you're curious about what race-based caucusing in the workplace is, what it isn't, how to get it started, how to keep it going, this course is for you. Courtney and Nicola share their insights from having done this work together for years. They share their templates, their practical strategies, and actionable advice to help you succeed in implementing this in your workplace. Whether you're an HR professional or a team leader, consultant or educator, CEO, or really any role in the organization who is ready to invest time and energy into creating a more inclusive and understanding workplace, join the course and learn how this tool can be a part of the change towards more equitable, thriving futures. Head over to bit.ly backslash caucus course to check it out now and be sure to use the code caucus50 at checkout for $50 off the price. Now let's get back to the conversation. spending so much time with technologies, understanding the negative impacts of them, how they might be used. What's in your stack these days? Like what's, what tech are you using and not using? And what apps are you like? That seems cool, but I'm not willing to put up with how that data is being used.
0: That's a great question. And, and here too, I'm deeply unsatisfied by my own answer. So for example, I'm very aware of how Ruinous, Facebook and its app ecosystem uh, has been in terms of destabilizing democracies uh, all over, the, over the planet, in terms of inciting and incentivizing racialized violence. I am very aware that Facebook and its, by extension, all of its you know corporate partners, including to a certain extent Oculus, are mired in all manner of specifically racist violence, and yet as someone who could be mistaken for a public intellectual, I have to communicate to people where folks read, where they get content, where they are. And so on on one hand, I would very much love to absent myself from the Facebook ecology. And yet I know that when I do that, I will not be as successful in maintaining a critique of the very technology I'm using to manufacture that critique. This doesn't make me happy. Like, I, I don't like it. But the, the fact of the matter is that there is not only an economic cost to my not using, in this case, Facebook, but I am I would be less successful at understanding and critiquing it if I were to absent myself from it. This is maybe convenient on some level. There's a good chance that, for example, after a couple of years of doing the work with the military robotics, that I will stop. I'm not sure how that's going to go, but I, I want to be clear that just because I'm, I'm doing work on these platforms now, I do not necessarily plan to do it forever. I want to be really candid about how this research is unfolding. The robotics work in particular is less than a year old. We have only just started building the curricular scaffolding across my department, which is theater arts and performance studies and computer science, where these robots actually live. There's a lot of like infrastructure that we are building um, as a function of this course, as well as the center for research and choreographic interfaces. And it could be that all of that infrastructure is useful and we do it in perpetuity. But it could also be that we decide that our implication in these systems is so horrific that we dissolve the entire thing. This, for me, starts to get at a question of like, what is the nature of the work? Is the nature of the work to continue doing whatever it is that you're doing forever because it's convenient or because of uh, legacy costs or inertia? And I want to say that I'm working with the robotics right now, and I think it's likely that I'll continue doing that in the future. But if we decide that the harms are greater than the potential benefit of the continuation of the research, we will absolutely stop. And so we, we haven't stopped any uh, form of this research just yet. It's never far from my mind that we might have to completely pull the plug. And I'm totally willing again game to do that.
1: Well, you talk about the work as it relates to choreo robotics. Oftentimes we refer to the work when we talk about anti-racism, anti-oppression as, as the learning and as the journey, in particular as, as white guys with relative power and privilege that looks similar and different depending on where we started and, and how we interact with those around us. Can you unpack a little bit of like, what has your journey been like? And you've already mentioned a number of, of books and, and people who have had influence on your thinking and life. What has that journey been like, though? And what are some other things that you found to be really impactful along the way?
0: Maybe to start, I've become mindful of what privilege means in this context within my body and institutional position. Functionally, privilege, I think, in this context means the ability to make and enact choices. Privilege is my ability to decide what it is that I'm going to do and then do it. And this, I think comes with no small amount of responsibility when it comes to, again, what we're kind of euphemistically referring to as the work. What is the work? What does that mean? The privilege that I occupy is in relation to hegemonic violence everywhere. So like the pervasiveness and subtlety of hegemony, it's like the matrix. It's everywhere. Uh, maybe to borrow a little bit from the Wachowski siblings and like a little bit from Kimberly Crenshaw, we're all in a prison that for many of us, we can neither feel nor taste nor touch. It's everywhere. But this means that the work of resistance has to be equally ubiquitous. It means that from making decisions about how I structure my payroll, to how I parent my children, I need to always, always be looking for ways to learn and to do the work. It's all the work. And, you know, if that sounds exhausting to the other white folks listening in today, imagine what it's like for the folks for whom prison isn't a metaphor, the folks for whom the very notion of America was constructed to subjugate. I choose to engage in this work because I was afforded the choice, and also because choosing not to make a choice is a choice too. I
1: often think of that when, when something happens and well, it's exhausting. I'm, I'm exhausted. And like, well, if I'm a white guy, like- It's like, really? No. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've actually found that to be helpful and to help me re-engage in those moments. Because it's sort of, okay, come on, like, not really that exhausted. This is work that is required of us. But at the same time, you're like, how do you balance that with self-care, especially amid a global pandemic, where all of our lives are being impacted in, in new and different ways? I find that a challenge, but also part of the responsibility.
0: Totally. And that question of care, speaking of ubiquity, I think this question of care is really It's capacious and and I think useful when thinking about how we engage or do the work under capitalism. And this gets me back to the parasitism thing for a bit, how we understand self-care is popularly like taking a yoga class or whatever. And that's the consumer culture answer to self-care. But if, if you think about like the things that are making us exhausted, if you think about the things that are making us tired. A yoga class doesn't address systemic racism. A yoga class doesn't address racial capitalism. So if if you find yourself tired, yeah, yoga can be great. But it's maybe worth thinking about the difference between addressing a symptom of that exhaustion and a cause. The cause is always capitalism.
1: Well, let's play out this a little bit more, or let's pull this out a little bit more as we think about those who might be listening, in particular those those white guys who might be listening, who are earlier in a journey and understanding how they're moving through the system and how there's white advantage to just being the color that they are. What advice, what reflections, what prompts do you think might be helpful as people are wrestling with this understanding and early journey?
0: I run into a lot of folks who share similar positions of privilege, who are like not sure about their implication in these things and like not really sure if they're implicated in these structures or not or like if they have work to do. When it comes to like starting off, part of that initial catalyst is is understanding just how deeply we are all necessarily definitionally implicated in these structures of privilege and violence. And for those who have doubt, Robert De Niro has this line in the film Ronin which is a very bad film, and I do not recommend it, except for this line. Bob De Niro, I, I call him Bob because we're friends, he plays like a ex-CIA spook or something, I don't know. And he's like doing an op and uh, something doesn't feel right. And he, as a result of his decades of experience, he gets the wrong feeling from an op and he says something to the effect of, if there is doubt, then there is no doubt. And what he, what he means by this is that you know, if, if you have a, a sense that something's wrong. If you have a sense that you're implicated in these things, if you have a sense that something is gonna go awry, then it, it is. So if you have a sense specifically as a white man or somebody who occupies these positions of structural privilege, if you have a sense that there's something for you to do in this arena, if there's some work that you have a sense that there's work for you to do, then I promise you, you are totally right. There is. And if you don't think that there's work for you to do, you're uh, some combination of wrong or lying to yourself. I think the first step, is to understand that whether you think you are implicated in these systems or not, you are. The system only benefits by you thinking there isn't a system in place.
1: Let's talk about those systems because I've mentioned before, we're two years almost into a global pandemic where we've seen the system in different ways, where people who might not have seen the systems all of a sudden are interacting with things and coming to realize that there's stuff at play that they might not have known. As you think about the work and you intersecting with these systems, how have they looked different amid a global pandemic?
0: I'll talk about the work at CRC in particular. So our our, our last convening was in early March of 2020. This is an international conference, and we were literally a single person's being late to a meeting away from being a super spreading event. And we shut down our operations for a full year because uh, at first we just didn't really have a framework yet to continue the work, specifically of convening and gathering and discussing. And, but also because we shut down because other organizations were doing phenomenal work in this arena and had infrastructure that were perfectly capable of continuing to distribute their communications and, and build community. AI Now, the Algorithmic Justice League, Data and Society, these are organizations with very similar politics and interventions as ours. And so for a big chunk of the early pandemic, our website was basically like, okay, if you like Circe, you should give all of your attention and money to AI Now and Algorithmic Justice League. Like, go support those other folks. We are not in a position to productively intervene right now. They are. Go to them. Now, some two years later, our infrastructure now is totally virtual. We figured out new workflows like so many of us have. And we have a convening coming up in May actually, but it's very small in person, but with a huge uh, online footprint. We're still figuring it out. Functionally though, in this early phase as now, we've oriented ourselves to be of service and support. So if anything, the pandemic moment has shown us the importance of being of service and being candid with ourselves about whether or not we are or aren't the best people to do the work that we're striving to. It could be that actually convening and stuff is not best done by us, but instead by others. The point is that the relative success of my work or of my ventures is not the objective here. I'm not here for the success of CRC or for my own research agenda. The point of the work is to get the work done. And whoever is capable of uh, engaging of being activated given the shifting mercurial tides at the COVID moment, uh, those are the folks that I want to be in support of.
1: One of the quotes I've been sharing to get people's reactions to is from a colleague, Courtney Harsh. She's the CEO of of Buy For All, former colleague, coworker at Fractured Atlas, brilliant person. And she and I were talking about a session that we were doing and got all the way to the session where we were talking about like, how do you create policies and practices and procedures and language in an organization while centering anti-racism, anti-oppression, and like all the way to the end. And, And someone like raised their hand and said, I mean, this has all been really interesting, but can you like give some tangible examples? I had this moment where we're like, how have I failed you all? I mean, the entire thing was like tangible examples of like how to do this thing. And so Courtney and I are like talking about this and she said, you know, I think people confuse tangible with impactful and impactful with visible. Adding pronouns to email is tangible. Ending gender discrimination is impactful. Increasing in gender diversity at an organization is visible. As you think about your work and approach at at Brown and with the Institute, what resonates with you in these distinctions? First off, Courtney's
0: fucking brilliant. I love that framework. That's a really great framework. I'm reminded of a throwaway line of Foucault's that's been reimagined and reinterpreted by Black feminist surveillance scholarship. The line is something like, visibility is a trap. Now, Foucault was thinking about Carceral surveillance and more contemporary usages illustrate that applicability to the quotidian, our daily lives. But simultaneous to that, Ruha Benjamin has this other great line in her Race After Technology that Black folks live in the future. And what she means by this is that emerging surveillance technologies are almost always first deployed and perfected on communities of color. But we have to remember, and this is for you you know, white folks on the fence, that as though that Deployment of military technologies in communities of color wasn't bad enough. Eventually, always, these surveillance technologies turn on society at large. And that means you. I think about visibility a lot, both at the level of surveillance, but also within our organizational structure. You know, CRC is able to do our work because at some level, Brown University doesn't really understand what it is that we do or are seeking to do. And our impact in working against structures that perpetuate institutional racism within these emerging technologies is on some level contingent on our ability to not be visible performing as such. And so you can imagine, as previously discussed, this is a pretty fucking delicate balance here and one that is incredibly emergent and that I feel very uncertain in. This is something that we are working on or towards. But here too, I'm I'm guided by Anna Watkins Fisher, by the theorizing of the parasitic I'm thinking of Legacy Russell and Glitch Feminism. I'm thinking of Simone Brown's Dark Matters, uh, Dignazio and Klein's Data Feminism. There's no shortage of phenomenal feminist scholarship on and around these issues. Functionally, though, what, what these texts have taught me is that a straightforward sequential understanding of the relationship between tangibility and visibility and impactfulness, these things are not always proportional, and that proportionality or sequentialness is misleading. Sometimes you have to mix up the ratio to get the work done.
1: We are coming up to the end of our time together, landing the plane. What else is on your mind? How how do you want to close this one? Two things
0: come to mind. First, this choreo robotics course in the spring. I'm really excited about it, specifically because it's very very hard. It is easily the most complicated course, but potentially also like project I've ever done at Brown. And one of the things that makes me really excited about it, though, is that we're engaging a number of artists who are there for the tangle, whose artistic practices resonate with the problematics of the course itself. So for example, we're bringing in a phenomenal choreographer, Janita Castro, and technologist, Stefan Moore. They came to us with the challenge of creating a robotic orchestra that is capable of improvising with Janita's dancers. And the specific nature of that improvisation is the ability of a robot to play an instrument uh, that comes from Puerto Rico called the guiro, which is functionally an emptied out gourd that you strike with a comb. And so because we are trying to center artistic research within this course that's notionally about robotics, we are using this prompt to center and structure the entire course. And so if you imagine the numerous interlocking, super, super duper hard technical challenges that come from a robot that's capable of improvising with dancers, I mean, just name a few. It's like, first, there has to be a robot that's capable of holding onto the gourd and holding onto a comb. And then they have to run into each other through a f- series of gestures that create sound but how does a robot know if it's making the right sounds well it has to be able to hear what it's doing so you have to have various of like sonic sensors beat detection that are capable of sonically registering whether or not the instrument is being played correctly and then the robot has to be able to correct itself if it's playing the instrument wrong but then we also need sensors that are capable of discerning multiple simultaneous dancers moving across time and space. So the robot has to be able to figure in relation to those dancers, what it is doing. Also, there's other robots doing things with instruments. So like, you you can tell like that the number of computational and technical challenges here that specifically emerge as a result of Janita's work, it's really, 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 really hard. Again, Janita's artistic practice is the thing that is galvanizing the technical research, but the kind of the meta-kernel here, and this speaks to Janita's specific practice as a Puerto Rican woman. She's also very deeply concerned with what happens when you extract cultural data, such as how to play an instrument like the guido, which is indigenous to Puerto Rico, like how you automate that. You turn that practice into data and then apply it to an automated system, like a robot. This is an extractive violence of a sort. So how do we specifically, how does she create a performance that is about those structural violences while also participating and partaking in them? So this, this is again a a question of, implication and parasitism. She is using the robotics research to get at a larger point about colonial exploitation. We're gonna be presenting this work in some fashion at the 2022 Conference for Research on Choreographic Interfaces, which is May 6th and 7th. We have a title for this convening that I'm really proud of. It's Circe 22, colon. This is gonna be pretty fucking awkward. On some level, the conference is about opacity. It's about implication. It's about these kind of black boxy awkwardnesses, but it's also, uh, and we're going to have to acknowledge this in all sorts of ways. It's going to be really weird having people in shared space and time. I don't know how you do that, but we're going to figure it out. So all to say that the next stuff coming up is a squirrel robotics course and the CRC conference. In terms of what's next, I want to be candid here. So much of this work is coalitional in nature, not just the robotic stuff, not just the the military research stuff, not just the, the choreographic research or whatever. Um, but the work of being first in relation and then working against the structures of power that we've been discussing for the last hour. This is coalitional work. It's affinity bound. It is organizing. I'm in many ways new to this. I'm still very much learning how to do this. This is a very nascent practice, relatively speaking, for me. But if there's anything that I can do to be of support to others who are taking up this work, who are interested in this work, if there's anything that I can do to learn more or better or faster how to understand my own implication and participation in these systems, I'm totally here for it. My email address literally is skybetter at brown.edu. And if anybody wants to talk more about these things, if there's anything that I can or should be doing, I hope you'll reach out and let me know.
1: Cindy, thank you for the offering. Thank you for the fascinating look into these different lenses that impact work and society and structures. It's always fun to get the band back together. Thank you for taking time, my friend. as, As always, it's a pleasure to chat with you about this work. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. Totally my pleasure. Thanks so much, Tim. If you've enjoyed the conversation or are just feeling generous today, please consider writing a review on iTunes so that others who might be interested in the topic can join the fun too. Give it a thumbs up or a five stars or phone a friend, whatever your podcasting platform of choice offers. Until next time, thanks for listening.